0: morning church. Well yesterday my grandson Ace celebrated his sixth birthday. (laughs) Praise God. It was a birthday that many doctors said he would never see. About five months before his due date the doctors began noticing several abnormalities in his development in the womb. A team of a dozen different doctors, pediatricians, specialists gathered with our whole family at the hospital, and each one painted a very grim picture of Ace's chances of living after he was born. I remember being devastated, and for the next five months, I remember spending lots of sleepless, anxiety-filled nights lying in the darkness in my bed, crying out to God. In prayer. The night that he was born, our whole family waited in the hospital waiting room, not knowing what the outcome of Ace's birth would be. It was the middle of the night, and there we all were just waiting. And finally, the door opened into the waiting room, and out walked Keith, Ace's dad, with a little baby bundled up in a blanket. Tears were streaming down Keith's face, and we didn't know if they were tears of joy or tears of sorrow, for we didn't know if we would be saying hello to Ace or hello and goodbye at the same time. And so we all gathered around Keith and Ace, and we still didn't know what we would see, and suddenly, As we looked on, Ace's little lower lip began (laughs) to quiver, and we knew that he was alive. And I felt right then as if God had brought Ace from death to life, and us with him too, and tears of joy started streaming down all of our faces. Have you ever noticed how at night when you toss and turn, struggling with feeling overwhelmed with a problem or a situation, how that darkness magnifies it. And how many times when morning comes, the problem seems just a little bit more manageable. Or the pain that has kept you awake all night seems more tolerable when daylight finally arrives. The psalmist discovered the exact same thing I'm reading from Psalm 30, beginning with the first five verses. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. We're in the fourth week of our Lenten series in the Psalms. And last week we looked at Psalms of Lament, and today we look at Psalms of Thanksgiving. David gave thanks to God because he had been in a bad way. In fact, it was so bad he thought that he might even die. In fact, it's a little bit hard to tell exactly what's going on in this psalm. It seems like there's a sickness of some sort. But then he also mentions enemies that were gloating over his demise. But in all of that, God healed him. And David wants every person to know it. He wants the entire faith community to join him in singing God's praises. And so here's the first thing that we learn, and I think this is really important. That God does not protect us from hardship. You know that, don't you? Life is hard sometimes. Life is filled with ups and downs. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than in David's life. But then there are so many others too, aren't there? Throughout scripture, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Jeremiah, the apostles, Paul. The truth is, none of those Bible characters and none of us escapes pain and hardship in life. Because life doesn't always go according to our plan. As I said, life is a combination of ups and downs, highs and lows, good days and bad days, wonderful triumphs and bitter defeats, great sorrow and incredible joy. If you sit there thinking and dreaming that your life is going to be magical like some perfect idealized world, you will be sorely disappointed. But here is the second half of that truth. In this pain and sorrow, God often does his most profound work in us. The story of Lazarus, found in John chapter 11, shows us how that happens. Jesus hears the news that his friend, Lazarus, is sick, and he tells his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus is telling the disciples, it seems, that this isn't what you think it is. This isn't going to end the way you think it's going to end. I'll be glorified. God will be glorified. It will all be good. It will end well. But after they hear that Lazarus is sick, Jesus stays right where he is for two more days. And that delay proves tragic. And so even though Jesus offers words of consolation, he fails to act immediately. Which brings more suffering and sorrow. But finally, after delaying, Jesus is ready to go to Bethany, where Lazarus lives. And Thomas, one of the disciples, says, hey, let's also go, that we may all die with Jesus, for there was fear that if Jesus went near Jerusalem, the authorities would arrest him. So Thomas understands that following Jesus is risky business. Jesus offers some words of consolation along the way, but, but a commitment, a commitment to following Christ sometimes puts us in the way of danger and sorrow. I mean, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time at all, you've probably discovered that for yourself. That when Jesus calls you, he doesn't always call you to to do the things that are the safest or the easiest or the least painful things to do. You imagine Jesus saying, I'm going to go and chart a course for you that every step you take is going to be upward and, and onward and a blessing upon blessing it's rarely like that what the course is that he often charts for us leaves us reeling and thinking really jesus why are you calling me to do that why there couldn't you pick something easier for me to do couldn't you pick something that involves less sacrifice and less danger for me and for those that i love but jesus often goes in those places where our response needs to be like Thomas's response. Let us go with you, even if we die. Well, when Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus' sister, Mary, meets Jesus. She sees him. She falls at his feet, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, as far as Mary can see, Jesus has stalled. He failed to act in a timely manner. He waited a couple of days, and as a result, he's brought more sorrow upon this family. And Mary places the blame squarely at Jesus' feet. Have you ever had that kind of a prayerful conversation with Jesus? David did. He wasn't afraid. You see, he had that level of intimacy with the Lord in which he could say, What was that about, Lord? If you had done this, if you had acted that way, if you had listened to me, we could have solved this one together. But you botched it, you bungled it, and now look where we are. I love the honesty of Mary in this passage. Remember, this is the same Mary who had garnered the highest praises from Jesus because she sat at his feet listening to him teaching while her sister Martha busied herself in the kitchen, getting upset and angry that her sister wasn't helping her. But now, it's Mary who's the bitter one. And there's this sense that the intimacy we have with God makes us a little more vulnerable to disappointment with God. Mary seems to be saying, I thought we had a different kind of relationship. I mean, remember when I used to sit at your feet, Jesus, and listen to you? I thought there was something implied in that kind of relationship, in that closeness, that you were going to deliver what I asked of you. And give me the desires of my heart. What happened, Jesus? Why did you allow this to happen? I thought you loved me. I thought you loved Lazarus. And then Mary burst into tears. John records Jesus' response. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. You see, Jesus steps right into the sorrows and suffering of others. Rather than standing back, aloof, separated, saying, listen, I told you all of this was going to end up well. Jesus sees the grief, the grief of the sisters, the grief of the friends, and he steps into that grief. And he begins to taste what they are tasting. He begins to cry with them. God incarnate, God in the flesh, weeps. Not only does Jesus step into the suffering of others, he goes through some of his own suffering You see, Jesus is experiencing the very same grief that he's observing around him. He's not standing apart from it. He's in it. Life can be so ugly and brutal and random sometimes. And Jesus says, I know what that's like. I feel it in my bones. I am deeply moved. Because Jesus has entered into that kind of sorrow And he's tasted his own sorrow. Well, finally, Jesus acts in the way that we hoped he would act all along. He says in a commanding voice, take the stone away, let him come out. And then Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth from the grave. So we see that Jesus has entered into our sorrow so that he might pull us out of it, bringing both an answer and the consolation in the midst of our sorrow. And then a really interesting thing happens if you read on a little bit. In the very next chapter, John says that the religious rulers made plans to kill Lazarus. The same man who had just been raised to life again, they want to kill. And so sorrow starts all over again. You see, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has put Lazarus in danger. People want Lazarus' head. There's a certain cycle, it seems, in following Jesus. A man familiar with suffering will sometimes allow sorrow to come into your life. It's a mystery. And I don't stand here proclaiming to understand all of it, but it's true. Jesus will go through it with you. He will bring consolation to you along the way, consolation that only he can bring. But if you are really intent on following Jesus, then we're not completely out of the woods until we get home, until we're safely on the other shore of Jordan. We will continue to walk in sacrifice and risk with a Savior who does the same. David discovered that to be true. In verse 2, remember he says, I called to you for help and you healed me. You brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. You see, just like Lazarus had been in the realm of the dead, so David had felt like he was in the realm of the dead. And we feel that sometimes too, don't we? But then David calls for the people of God to praise God. He goes on in the psalm, To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. You see, praise is the key. Praise is our response. Praise is the weapon in our arsenal that we can use to defeat our enemies. I love David's argument with God. Did you catch it? God, if I die, who's going to praise you? Is the dust going to praise you? It reminds me of Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, don't you think? Remember, everyone is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! And it makes the religious leaders very nervous, and so they tell the disciples, tell these people to be silent. Tell Jesus, your disciples, to stop it. And Jesus says, you know, if they keep quiet, even the stones, even the dust is going to cry out in praise. So yes, David, the dust very well may praise the Lord too. One day all of creation is going to praise and break out um, in hallelujahs to the Lord. For you see, prayer is a powerful tool that helps us on our journey, even in the midst of of difficulty, even in the face of scary times to come. There's a story in the book of 2 Chronicles in the 20th chapter. And in this story, we're told that there's a vast army that has come against the nation of Judah and their king, Jehoshaphat. There are three nations that have banded together against Judah, Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir. Their combined numbers vastly outnumber Judah's, and so Judah should be terrified. And they are. King Jehoshaphat is alarmed. We all would be, right, faced with those kinds of odds and that crisis. Normally, what we might respond to do is to look for some, uh, to form some allies of our own, to get some more people on our side if we're going against numbers that outnumber us. But King Jehoshaphat doesn't do that. What he does do is he goes to the Lord. And then he calls for a national day of fasting and prayer. And the whole nation turns out. The response is incredible. People come from every town and every village to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And the king himself leads them in prayer. He professes the belief that God is the ruler over everything. That God is the most powerful force in the universe And he recalls to mind the past when God made them a nation under the leadership of Moses. And and Jehoshaphat reminds God of the promise that God made to Solomon. That when calamity came, if the nation would only gather together for worship in the temple and cry out, that God would hear their prayer. And so he concludes the prayer by confessing that there is no human power that can save them. But he prays, but Lord, our eyes are on you. And that's exactly the kind of prayer that God loves. It brings delight to God's face. God loves to help people out of impossible situations. God rejoices when we acknowledge our own helplessness. Like God spoke to Paul in 2 Corinthians, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so there they stand in Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, men, women, and children, trembling in fear, silent and scared. And then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon a man named Jehaziel, and he speaks a prophetic word straight from God Thus saith the Lord, do not be afraid. And do not be discouraged because of this vast army confronting you. For the battle is not yours, but mine. And the people just fall down in awe and adoration and worship. Well, morning comes. And it's the day of reckoning. Are the people of Judah going to trust God or would they decide to take matters into their own hands. The armies on the other side are beginning to form their lines. And then Jehoshaphat does the strangest thing. He doesn't line up an army. He lines up the choir to lead the charge. The choir to lead the charge. Okay, I want the sopranos first, and then the altos, and then the tenors, and basses, you're going to bring up the rear only it'll be the rear that leads them into battle and so the guy in the base the guys in the base section say hey wait a minute you want us to go first and the king says yep but we don't have a sword you don't need a sword we don't have any armor you don't need any armor how do you expect us to fight i don't expect you to fight well what do you want us to do i want you to sing Sing? Sing what? Sing, give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. So the choir begins to march onto the battlefield in worship and praise. And as they do, something quite supernatural begins to take place. You see, the alliance between the opposing armies begins to unravel. And before the choir even reaches the front lines, the Ammonites and the Moabites annihilate Mount Seir, and then they turn on each other. And by the time the Sopranos reach the enemy, every one of them is dead. Not a single one left alive. And the battle has been won without a single blow. It's an incredible story that teaches us the power of praise. And it reveals to us how the supernatural power of God is released when we worship God. And it makes it clear that when we come up against insurmountable odds, immovable obstacles, and impossible situations, that the first thing we do, not the last thing we do, the first thing we do is to seek God in adoration and praise. We have yet to discover or to plumb the depths of what true praise can do. You see, praise announces the glory of God. And praise announces the defeat of evil and death. Praise turns our wailing into dancing and fills us with joy. Praise helps us deal with our fear of death. I mean, Most of us have a fear on some level of death. We want to live as long as possible. Death makes us a little nervous sometimes. We avoid it. We disguise us. We talk about it in euphemisms. Every time I go to the cemetery for a graveside service, I notice that that brown pile of dirt that's been dug out of the ground that's sitting next to the open grave, we don't even want to see that dirt, and they cover it with green astroturf trying to make us think about life instead of the fact that we are from the earth and we will be returned to the earth. Psalm 30 reminds us that God is more powerful than death. There's a singer-songwriter that I really enjoy named Fernando Ortega, and one of my favorite songs by him that he sings is called I Will Praise Him Still. And I've been thinking about that song this week because it fits this psalm so well. The words go like this. When the morning falls on the farthest hill, I will sing his name, I will praise him still. When dark trials come and my heart is filled with the weight of doubt, I will praise him still. For the Lord our God, he is strong to save from the arms of death, from the deepest grave. And he gave us life in his perfect will, and by his good grace, I will praise him still. And what I like about this song is that it reminds me that God is always worthy of my praise. Why? Because God is always faithful. And because God is always working for my good. And so whether morning is breaking over the hilltops and the sun is coming up, or whether I'm facing dark trials or an anxious heart or even doubting thoughts, I can still praise God. One of the lessons the Psalms teach us when talking to God is that we can be perfectly honest with God. We don't need to sugarcoat our words with God. We don't need to dance around what's on our mind. And I've always loved the fact that the Psalms give us an example to follow of how we can be frank with God, of letting him know exactly what's on our mind. And another thing I've learned from the Psalms is when we turn from our problems to God's goodness, to his power, to his faithfulness with words of praise, then we are reminded of God's character. And God's character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and so it gives us hope. You see, praising God and reminding ourselves of God's past faithfulness changes our outlook now and gives us hope for the future. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Psalm 30 is David's story. It's his testimony. He was at the point of death, and God rescued him. And so he wants everyone to know about it. It's not a private affair for David. He wants everyone to hear, and he will not keep quiet. We need to do the same thing. We need to remember what God has done for us and share it with other people. Walter Wyatt had flown from Nassau, Bahamas, to Miami many, many times in his life. It was a short flight. It usually only took about 65 minutes or so, but this time was different. For you see, some thieves had stolen the navigational equipment in his beachcraft, but he needed to get to Miami, and so with only a compass and a handheld radio, this experienced pilot flew in disguise that had been blackened by storm clouds. Well, when his compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded that he was headed in the wrong direction, and so he flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something that he recognized, but soon he knew without a doubt that he was lost. And so he put out a mayday call, which brought a Coast Guard Falcon search plane to lead him to an emergency landing strip that was just six miles away. But suddenly, before he got there, Wyatt's right engine coughed, sputtered, and died. He was out of fuel. And at 8 o'clock at night, all Wyatt could do was glide his plane into the ocean. Well, he survived the crash, but his plane quickly disappeared under the water, leaving him bobbing in the dark water in a leaky life vest. Blood was coming out of his forehead from where he had hit it, and so he floated on his back, But suddenly he felt a hard bump against his body. You see, a shark had found him. And Wyatt kicked the intruder and wondered if he would ever survive the night. Somehow he managed to stay afloat for the next ten hours. And in the morning as dawn broke, Wyatt saw no airplanes, but in the water he saw a dorsal fin was headed right for him. And so twisting, he felt the hide of a shark brush against him. And in a moment, two more bull sharks sliced through the water toward him. And again and again, he kicked the sharks, and they veered away. But he was nearing exhaustion. He was out of time. And then he heard the sound of a distant aircraft. And when it was just about a half a mile away, he waved his orange vest and the pilot radioed the Cape York, which was just 12 minutes away. Get moving, Cutter. There's a shark targeting this guy. And as the Cape York pulled alongside Wyatt, a Jacob's ladder was dropped over the side and Wyatt wearily climbed out of the water and onto the ship where he collapsed, fell to his knees, kissed the deck, and thanked God. He had been saved. Nothing less than the outside intervention of the Coast Guard could have rescued Wyatt from certain death at that point. It caused him to move from death to life. And that's our story too, isn't it? Only the outside intervention of God himself in Jesus Christ is able to save us from death and move us to life, both while we're here on earth and, of course, in our life after death. So what is your story? The reason we share our story is so that other people become aware of what God has done in our lives, and they begin to think, if God can do that for them, then maybe God can do that for me. If it's true for you, it could be true for me. What people in your life are dying to hear is an authentic story of personal and spiritual experiences, of longing to find meaning in life, stories of hope in the midst of distress where God enabled you to hold on, to hold tight, to hold fast in spite of evidence to the contrary. They want to know that they are not alone in this universe, that there is a God who will join with them in their pain and in their joy and bring them victory. What is your story? How has God brought you from death to life? And who in your life needs to hear it? Your neighbor? A family member? A friend? Share it with someone. Share it with someone you know and help them move from death to life that only God can do. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you so much that you are a God who listens to your children when we pray. We're thankful for the Psalms and for David who teaches us that we can lay anything out with you, that our relationship with you, that your relationship with us is strong enough for us to just talk real with you. Thank you, God, for saving us from the times when we have felt like we were in the miry pit, in the the depths of death, and that you've lifted us up. Thank you, Jesus, that you walked that journey with us entering into it with us. Undoubtedly, we'll face more times like that. But we know that we can talk to you and that you will rescue us. So, Lord, help us to share how you have moved us from death to life in our lives with those who still need to hear that great good news that you are a God of life, that you've gained the victory over death, and that that uh, victory belongs to all people who place their trust in you. We trust you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Hear our prayers. Amen.